um, this is my book, <laughs> A Women's Game, um, and I think it's particularly pertinent to be uh, talking about women's football so soon after the Euros, which I'm sure many of you could not avoid um, in the summer, um, which is a little bit of a shift change uh, for the women's game. It's not used to necessarily having as many eyes and uh, and ears on it as as it it did during uh, during the summer's tournament. Um, this is the original cover of my book on the left and the new cover of my book on the right, um, which is yet to be released um, following the success of the Euros. And it's, um, I suppose, the the choice of image <laughs> speaks to the sort of revolution that has happened in women's football in England um, in recent years. The image on the, the left is of Brandy Chastain um, celebrating the uh, US women, women's team winning the World Cup in 1999, which was really a game-changing tournament for for women's football in the United States. And then Chloe Kelly similarly rep replicating uh, that celebration inadvertently, unconsciously, um, as England won the Euros was pretty symbolic of the, the kind of shift change we're seeing in England at the moment. So I wanted to give you a little bit of a an overview of... Um, sort of brief history of women's football um, in a nutshell um, to give you a little bit of a flavour of what's in the book. So um, the very first examples of women's football, I think a lot of people know, if they know about football generally, um, will be aware that uh, the very, very first forms of people kicking balls um, was in China in sort of around sort of Han Dynasty. Um, but what many people don't know is actually women playing football was also um, prevalent at that time. There's a game called Cujo, called Kickball. Um, and some of these images that you can see there suggest that the women also played the sport. There's very, very few um, bits of evidence to, to kind of really be able to say definitively that it was a sport that was played you know, kind of on teams in the same way that the there is archival evidence that the men's game was and stuff, but there is enough evidence to suggest that women were also involved in playing sport as early as that, uh, which is quite exciting because obviously women's football is very much treated as a bit of a new phenomenon. So the late 1800s was the first uh, example of women's football kind of um, getting a little bit of a foothold in England. Um, there was initially before some of these pictures, uh, there was the first attempt at uh, 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 the first recorded football match uh, between two women's teams was a, was a game in Scotland in 1888 um, between a, an England team and a Scotland team that was made up uh, of theatre, uh, women theatre players um, by a, um, a theatre entrepreneur who saw the growth of men's international football and thought, this could be uh, a unique way of jumping on that bandwagon. Um, shortly after that, in 1884, um, a woman called Nettie Honeyball, which was a pseudonym, she's the woman on the top left, um, who was a bit of an aristocrat, um, launched the British Ladies Football Club, put an advert in the newspaper, um, calling for players to come and join the team, and essentially... Um, founded uh, a, a, a British women's football team that would compete uh, against a team in Scotland 
um, which was run by a, a woman called Mrs. Graham, another pseudonym. Um, at that time, it was very much a political move. Um, Nettie Honeyball and the team's um, patron, Lady Dixie, were um, like staunch feminists, had campaigned for gender neutral clothing and things like that. And they saw football as a tool to progress um, sort of suffrage and feminist ideas at the time. Um, so they, you know, saw this hugely popular sport and thought, you know, this is a way to reach the masses and bring people people towards those ideas on a, on a much greater scale to challenge some of the ideas of uh, of what women should be and do at the time uh, and push back against them. So that was the very very first examples. They play games up and down the country. They got some pretty horrific press. Um, games physically attacked. Um, police having to sort of break up crowds on horseback that kind of thing um this was somewhat like some of the examples of sort of the the coverage of of, of women playing uh at that time this was in the sketch magazine uh real sort of mocking um take of of women playing football so you've got um top right the the poor referee this like sort of crowd of women swarming this poor referee in their in their lovely shirts you've got a woman show arriving at the match in her full um you know full gear cane in hand handbag at the ready um the women reading the newspapers afterwards a very glamorous referee standing in goal them kind of fanning themselves and doing their hair at half time and stuff and very very like um sort of piss taking mocking um uh, of the idea of women being involved in football at the time. Um, and that very much corresponded to what was taking place in society general, in, in general at that time. You know, women in the Victorian era were supposed to be delicate and elegant and pale and, you know, not kind of be out in the, in the sun fighting, uh, fighting players on a pitch, but it's kind of sitting at a piano and reading a book and that kind of thing. So it was very much, um, you know a kind of correlation between uh, between the attitudes uh, towards women and the attitudes towards women playing sport but in the sort of 19 say from about 1917 to to the sort of mid 1920s that shifted quite dramatically um the war first world war had a huge impact on the growth of uh, women's football because with men going off to fight in the war um, the factories were filled with women workers um, to fill the gap left behind by them. And very much in the same way that a lot of men's football teams were born out of the factories, uh, so were a lot of women's teams. So it was less frowned upon for women to play football because it was seen as like advantageous to have a fit and healthy workforce, um, to give them something to do, to you know keep them occupied and morale up and things like that. Football was suddenly a good thing to, for women uh to do at the time. Um, so you had all these factory teams um, sort of spring up all across the country and really change uh, the way people looked at women playing football. Um, this is the most famous team of the time, Dick Kerr Ladies, who in 1953 attracted, um, sorry, no, in 1920 attracted 53,000 um, fans to Goodison Park for a game against local rival St. Helens. Um, which was the record crowd for a women's domestic club match for almost 100 years, um, right up until very, very recently. Um, and they travelled the world. They played um, in France. They played in the US. Um, they played against men's teams and they drew crowds and raised money for charity like No Tomorrow. 
um, they were so successful. Um, I was skipping that. They, played, they were so successful that um, the FA banned women's football in 1921, a year after um, the Dicko ladies had had 53,000 at Goodison Park, um, citing it as being unsuitable for women to play football. Obviously, the war had ended in 1921. Um, women had gone back into the homes. Um, they you know, needed to free up the jobs for men um, and essentially push uh, push women back into the uh, into into the households really, and so that meant that there was a big big shift in the way that um, uh, the way that society saw women and the role of women, um, and that uh, impacted the the kind of effect the impacted women's football almost irrevocably. Um, so yeah, the FA banned women's football. It was a ban that lasted fifty years, and it. it it wasn't an out and out ban. They couldn't like literally stop women from playing football, but they uh, ruled that um, women's teams weren't allowed to play on FA affiliated grounds anymore. So, you know, Goodison Park and all of the big men's stadiums were suddenly ruled out of action entirely. And that forced women, um, women's teams and um, uh, players into parks, into athletics tracks, into rugby stadiums, anywhere that would let them play. But they were kind of grounds with significantly smaller capacities. And there was a huge... Um, sort of stepping down of crowd sizes as a result. You know, they couldn't physically fit them there. So gradually the women's game shrunk and shrunk in profile. There were teams that sort of battled on. Ditko ladies battled on until 1965. Um, Manchester Corinthians was a team established during the ban that played all around the world. You can see their impressive trophy cabinet. They competed um, in tournaments in uh, Italy, in France, um, really kind of, well-established one of the the teams of sort of the 60s and uh 50s 60s and 70s that, that that led the way in pioneering the game at a time where they weren't allowed to play um in 1970 there was an unofficial world cup um which attracted more than 40,000 to the final there were talks of it possibly reaching even up to 90,000 and you can see the crowds there pretty huge um the first official World Cup didn't come around until 1991, which was not even called the World Cup because FIFA didn't want to uh, bring down the, the brand. Uh, it was called the first FIFA World Championship for Women's Football for the M&M's Cup. And it was won by the US Women's National Team. Um, and they returned it very low profile. They returned to... Um, America, zero fanfare, no one waiting for them at the airport. No one knew that they had won it. One player even said on the plane, the woman next to her asked her what she'd been doing and, you know, had no idea that there had been a, a Women's World Cup, that they had won anything. Um, you fast forward uh, eight years and you've got the um, the 99ers in the US who won the World Cup again, but on US soil in front of a crowd of more than 90,000 fans in Pasadena, which is where the iconic picture from my book comes from. Uh, Brandy Chastain celebrating the winning penalty against China to win that tournament. Now, it, it massively transformed the game in the US. It exploded it onto the central centre stage. Um, girls were playing everywhere. Um, there was unique set of circumstances around uh, the US that meant that um, 
Title IX, a legislation which ruled that education education institutions had to fund women and men's sports equally at college level um, and school level, um, meant that you had huge investment into women's uh, women's soccer and women's sports programs in the same way that they did into you know sort of uh, American football and baseball and things like that, um, and uh, you know a very unique set of circumstances in that it was also not a, a big men's sport in, in the US too. But now we're seeing here a sort of similar um, resurgence of um, of women's football uh, on, on the scale of the, the 99ers as a result of the Euros. Um, the England women's national team winning the Euros has like changed the game forever. I burst into tears at the final um, because, you know, I've, followed the, the women's football since I was quite young um, and uh, had covered the uh, many of those players for, for, for a number of years and really watched how hard they had fought to get to that position. Um, so many of them started as amateurs, working a number of jobs. I remember Jill Scott talking about training in a, in a prison uh, gym up in the northeast because they would had the best gym facilities at the time in the sort of like early 90s. Um, and that was sort of the level that they had started at. So to see them reach this sort of pinnacle of the game in, in 2022 was uh, particularly special. But that wasn't a victory that was a surprise in, in many respects because it had very much been built for. The FA had um, in 2017 launched a strategy for the women's game that included targeting uh, success at the Euros in 2021, which became 2022 as the pandemic pushed the tournament back, and at the World Cup this year um, in Australia and New Zealand. And they've already met one of those targets uh, by winning the Euros. So it was very much a, a plan, a structured uh, approach to, to build um, and put the support structure around the team and the facilities and the resources into the team that would enable them to reach the success. And that's in many ways why the Euros win is about so much more than a team winning a football tournament um, because that team showed that if you invest in women and support them and back them properly, um, they uh, can achieve great things. Um, and that sends a, a much wider message to women and girls in many, many other areas about the, uh, you know, the importance of feeling valued and of being supported, but also to businesses generally, to sports generally, that if you invest in women, it it, it pays off. You know, it's not uh, it's not money thrown into into the dark and it's empowered a lot of those players to speak out um, very strongly on issues that matter to them, like the right of girls to be able to play football um, and benefit from a lot of the the the, the life skills that, that it's it's given them. Um, I remember one player very recently saying to me, um, I, I want a girl to be able to choose not to play football because that's, that means they had the choice in the first place. Um, and I think that really speaks to uh, the legacy of this team uh, and what they were able to achieve. Um, and that's a real sort of like game-changing moment that is going to enable a huge number of girls to be able to look at sports and feel like they belong in it and have a place and and can um, can be strong and powerful and physical and athletic in a way that uh, that bucks the trend uh, and the way society says they should should be. Thanks very much.